Walmart makes two new big jumps because this is where the money is. Hi fools, financial analyst Michael Douglas here with our senior banking specialist John Maxfield from Portland who just got back in from Italy. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I ate too much spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> but, but other than that, I never thought, I didn't think it'd be possible, but, but it is. Wow, yeah, that, that's, that's actually pretty shocking to me. Um, I, I did not know such a thing existed, but it's good to know. Um, well, it's great to have you back for the show, uh, John. We certainly missed you while you were gone. Um, let's, let's jump right in. There's kind of a lot happened <laughs> over the last uh, couple of weeks. Let's start off with uh, the third quarter for banks. So a headline from our good friends at the Wall Street Journal, clouds hang over strong quarter for banks. And overall, the quarter didn't look too bad, right? You had, uh, what, revenue growing five of the six big banks, only Bank of America down. And, well, they also had that minor issue of the humongous lawsuit that they, they paid off, which uh, re uh, results in a multi-billion dollar charge. Um, what are the clouds hanging over the banks? So to your point, Michael, there's the, the kind of the storyline is that, look, revenue grew at five out of the six big banks. <clears throat> the one exception was Bank of America. And they were the one that had, <coughs> excuse me, the $16.65 billion legal settlement with the Justice Department and a number of other states. Um, but the problem that we're still seeing with a lot of the banks, and this has been kind of the storyline since the financial crisis, is that the expenses are just too high right now. You have compliance expenses for Dodd-Frank and the regulatory stress test. Then you also have still the remaining uh, litigation costs, which hit Bank of America, Citigroup, um, and J.P. Morgan last, uh, last quarter. And then on the other side, we're having um, issues because on the revenue side, even though revenue grew, it's still relatively constrained because interest rates, and short-term interest rates in particular, are still very, very low. And large banks are asset-sensitive institutions. So, so long as those, those uh, short-term interest rates are low, their revenue is going to be down. So it won't really be until those interest rates increase that we're going to see an, an overall recovery um, back to those kind of pre-crisis norms. Mm -hmm. Are there any, uh, well, are there any of the big banks that look attractive to you right now, given that situation? Well, the, I mean, there are two of the two of the big banks that are perennially well run. You have Wells Fargo, which is just an excellent kind of a retail bank, although they're kind of expanding out into the in, in investment bank stuff on on a on a controlled basis. And, and they've just been a great bank for many many decades. And then you have J.P. Morgan Chase, which even though it's more on the investment banking side, it also is a very well run bank. And those those are the type of institutions that over the long run your money is probably relatively safe. Sure. Uh, well, and they've uh, both done a pretty good job of controlling expenses, I think, uh, especially relative to our friends at Bank of America. All right. Good to hear. All right. So let's, let's jump then into our second headline. And this is, again, from our friends at the Wall Street Journal. Um, it says, uh, Fannie, Freddie, uh, mortgage giants set to loosen lending. Um, and so the issue here is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are discussing basically making it easier to get a home loan, uh, but down to about a 3% uh, down payment required. Of course, the, the well, there are some substantial benefits to the uh, to the potential U.S. economy. Let's talk about those first. Well, I mean, if you look at the housing market in, t in terms of the overall uh, economy, I think that there was a statistic, a statistic thrown about a couple weeks ago that if the housing recovery was kind of back on track, mm -hmm. our GDP growth rate would be something like four percent on an annual basis, which is du double what it is right now. Right. Uh, so when you look at, you know, look, here we're, what, six years past the financial crisis, and we're looking to decrease those credit standards once again, um, 
the impetus is the importance of this market to the overall U.S. economy. Of course, critics uh, of this sort of proposal that's being hammered out right now would point to the fact that, well, you know, underwater, people are underwater in their mortgages. That was a big concern in the housing market um, over, well, during the financial crisis and post it as well, and that it's really not hard to go underwater on a 3% mortgage. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, that, that really is the key, right? So if you're a bank or you're a lender and you make a mortgage, the one way you protect that is you take collateral in the house. But, but you, the, the, the way you really protect yourself is you, you require the borrowers to make a significant down payment. So let's say a 20% down payment. Well, if they subsequently default, the bank will come in, take the house. There'll be 20% of equity that they can use to defray costs in the foreclosure process. With a 3% down payment, you're just you're not, not going to be able to defray your costs. So looking at it from a credit perspective, from a lender's perspective, this doesn't seem like a like a very prudent move. But on the other side of it, this you know the concern that this is going to say <clears throat> boost or cause another housing bubble is probably a little bit unfounded. Right. Because if you look at the last housing bubble, what we saw was there were absolutely no standards, right? What well, now there are still standards. You still have to have income. You still have to have a, a you know a decent balance sheet. You have to have a decent credit score. You're just your down payment is going to be less. So we're talking about two very different two two very different things here. Is that down payment requirement too small? You know, in my humble opinion, if I was a lender, I'd probably want a larger down payment, or I certainly would want a larger down payment. But you'd so long as you know the borrower has income, has assets to back it up, there's less to be concerned about now. Sure. No, uh, fair point. And of course, as we pointed out before, housing really, really key to the economy. This is something we're going to want to watch very closely. Uh, finally, let's let's talk about Walmart. Uh, and you know, this is a banking show. Uh, you don't really think we're going to talk about Walmart too often. Uh, but interestingly enough, Walmart is starting to get involved in free checking accounts. I've got a headline here from uh, John Mac. Oh, that's you. Uh, called the Bank of Walmart is open for business. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Walmart's looking to team up with Green Dot Bank. What's their incentive? So, you know, to your point, Walmart and Green Dot Bank have entered into a partnership mm -hmm. through which Green Dot Bank will use its banking charter to offer checking accounts for demand deposits um, to customers at Walmart. Now, this is something that Walmart's been trying to do for a long time. I think starting in the late 90s, right. they've tried to get bank charters in a number of different states: Oklahoma, Utah, and California. And they've just been unable to do it in large part because the bank, the bank industry lobby has has fought so hard to keep Walmart out of their out of their jurisdiction as you would as you would expect. Um, but this is really by teaming up with a separate bank and not having an ownership structure there where Walmart owns Green Dot Bank. This is allowing it kind of a side door into the banking industry. Mm -hmm. And and so then two questions come to mind. I'll I'll ask you in order. The first one is. Um, should banks be scared of Walmart, and if so, why? You know, that is a, actually a really good question, Michael, because on the one hand, if you look at how banks have behaved towards their customers, and particularly towards their low-end customers, mm -hmm. which their low-income, uh, you know, on the, on, on the income-end customers, which would be Walmart's kind of bread-and-butter clients, they haven't treated those people very well. They've charged them egregious overdraft fees, They've fixed credit card arbitration panels against customers. They've done a whole assortment of things that makes it look like they're not overly interested in these customers. So on that hand, uh, you know, in, in that regard, these 
this looks to be something that Walmart can step in, easily disrupt the financial industry, at least on the, on the low end. But on the other side of the equation, you have the importance of demand deposits. So banks make money by taking loans from individuals, principally through deposits, and then they lend that money back out to people in, in, in their own loans or through buying securities or, or doing other things like that. Well, demand deposits are the best type of loans that banks can get to then reinvest because demand deposits pay, in general, 0%. So it's basically a free source of money, and that's what Walmart is going after right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and, and that, I think, gets, segues very nicely into my second question, which is, you know, what's really the benefit to Walmart here? Okay, so they have this, this source of money. Uh, what are the opportunities you see for them? Well, Walmart, I mean, if you look at its history, and it's not that long of a history, it only goes back to the early 1960s, but Walmart is really um, set on providing the best services at the lowest cost to their customers. And one of the things that they noted in the financial press release um, that announced this decision is that, look, these customers have not been well served by the financial industry. So Walmart's saying, look, we'll step in just like we did in retail, and we'll provide these services at a, less co- at, at a lower cost to them without kind of the punitive fees that all these customers have been so accustomed to um, from the larger banks. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and this gives me an opportunity to, to, to backdoor in something. You know, I, I, I long time where the money is, listeners will know that I, I originally came here from the healthcare side. Um, and one thing that's actually really interesting is that Walmart's also looking to disrupt health insurance. Um, now, not by offering plans, but basically by recognizing that health insurers haven't necessarily done a good job of communicating with folks about what plans are available and sort of helping them match up. And so they were partnering with directhealth.com to provide insurance agents in 2,700 of their 4,300 stores, basically during both the Obamacare open enrollment and Medicare open enrollment this fall. What's really interesting about it, though, is that they're not actually supposed to make a dime off it anywhere. These insurers aren't, uh, the insurance agents aren't paying them anything. Um, they don't actually make any money off of it. The idea is, though, is to build up sort of those sticky relationships. And, and, and to my mind, this, this banking opportunity is a, a greater opportunity for Walmart to sort of make themselves sort of this big box idea of a, a one-stop shop that everybody can go to for, you know, their food and for their toys and for electronics and for banking and for healthcare. Um, and that opportunity to kind of create that closed ecosystem I think is actually really interesting and is something that folks who are considering Walmart as an investment need to think about very carefully. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. And you know, whether you're the financial industry or the healthcare industry or really whatever it is, the automotive industry or whatever, anytime you have a company with the resources of Walmart coming into your traditional province and on top of that, Walmart's fundamental business model is not to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. right, on each individual transaction. It's actually to drive those margins way, way, way down. And in the healthcare industry and in financials, these guys are accustomed, these, these guys and gals are accustomed to very large margins. Mm-hmm. So you, when you have Walmart stepping in and threatening to bring those margins down, I mean, it, it's a serious threat. Yeah, and uh, definitely something, you know, it's funny. Whenever Walmart comes in and uh, uh, disrupts an industry, people say, well, it's not going to work this time. And yet it does seem to keep working. So definitely something anybody who's interested in financial or healthcare or any industry for that matter should be watching very closely. Uh, John, oh, yeah, go on. And, and just, just one more point. It's easy to take a, a view of Walmart as being the villain, and mm-hmm. particularly in, in, with respect to how it 
you know, purportedly treats its employees. But in these two instances, and in its instance where, and in the case where it introduced discount retailing to the masses, there really is another side of the story that needs to be understood in order to really round out um, one's, you know, kind of fair and objective view of a company like Walmart. No, I think that's that's very fair and again, something that folks should keep in mind when they're thinking about the company. Uh, John, thank you very much. Uh, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, folks, for The Motley Fool, I'm Michael Douglas. Please uh, check back to fool.com for all your financial, healthcare, consumer goods, and other investment needs. Uh, for Where the Money is listeners, we'll have another show tomorrow. Um, till then, stay tuned and fool on.